0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'd like to welcome you to Unsiloed. And I'm here today with Esther Wojcicki, who is the author of this wonderful book, How to Raise successful people. Esther's been at Palo Alto High School for many years, heading up their media arts program. I think you were the chair of the English department. You had a a couple other roles there. And in addition to your formal role at Palo Alto High, you've, you've also worked with Google Theater Academy. You have a bunch of other activities that you've been doing in your community, which maybe we'll have a chance to get into. But welcome, Esther.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. Or should I say Professor LeBlanc?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we need to do that. Well, I'm honored. So one of the things that comes out in your work all the time is this this idea that, you know, there are these real similarities and commonalities between the role of the, the teacher and the role of the parent, and maybe even the role of the spouse. That These are things which occupy, I mean, certainly the parent and the spouse part occupy a huge amount of all of our lives, and yet while you might go to school to learn how to be a teacher, you, you don't really ever go to school to learn how to be a parent, and you don't ever go to school to learn how to be a partner. Since it's so important, and since we all do it, why, why do we think that this is something that doesn't need any kind of formal training? And even, even with teaching, I mean, certainly for those of us in the university, our education is really all about the subject matter, and it's not about kind of teaching the subject matter. Why is it that we assume that everybody knows how to do this?
1: Well, I think it's historical. For thousands of years, human beings have reproduced, and the parent generation has taken care of the new generation, and so far that worked out. And I mean, let's face it, we have billions of people on the planet, so clearly we're doing something right. Although, I think you have to ask the question, are those billions of people happy, and are they productive? And are they leading lives that they want to lead? So that's where the new role of parenting comes in. Because what we're trying to do now, which we weren't trying to do, I think, 100 years ago, is to really see how productive our children can be when they enter the adult world and how happy they can also be. So happiness has become something that people are pursuing. And I would say if you go back to Charles Dickens' era, they weren't pursuing happiness. They were pursuing existence. I think that's made a big difference.
0: Even when people are taught how to do some of these things, the teaching might actually do more harm than good. I think you, you described you learned how to become an educator, both at UC Berkeley and, and elsewhere. I mean, you've, you've got formal training in education. And in your book, you talk about how you know a lot of that training in the field of education was in many ways detrimental to your experience as, as a teacher, What is it that we get wrong about teaching? Like, what's the number one thing that we seem to get wrong about the role of teacher and the role of parent?
1: I think the requirements in the 21st century are different than the requirements for the 20th century. The role of the teacher in the 20th century was to teach people to obey, to follow rules, and to read. And there was a huge number of people that, as a matter of fact, the majority of the population couldn't read. So the goal was to have everybody be literate and have some math skills. And I think we succeeded in the 20th century. That was very effective. And now in the 21st century, we want people to think. We want people to be creative and entrepreneurial. And so what the established rules for the 20th century, the established way of teaching for the 20th century does not work for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And you don't get creativity when you're teaching people to obey. And we have 12 years of doing that. And the Students that are the most recognized and most successful are the ones that obey the most, and they historically are also the least creative. They're less willing to take a risk and do something different. I think the world has changed sufficiently, thanks to our technology age, that we really need to rethink what we're doing, and that's why the 21st century is different.
0: Yeah, well, maybe the 21st century hasn't arrived everywhere, and there are probably parts of the world or parts of the economy where creativity and, and independence of thinking might not be as, as rewarded as, as they certainly are and where we are here in Silicon Valley. You described a pretty seminal moment in your, your life history when you were younger, which involved your brother, David. And when you point back to that experience, you said that that was sort of the moment when you decided that you were going to think for yourself, that you were going to, question the authority, question status quo, question the accepted wisdom that you didn't have to have complete faith and trust in whatever it was that you were being told. Maybe you can say a little bit about that experience, but also what are the other experiences that led you to that? And do you think that because your upbringing was one that was sort of rigid in many ways, even though your mother was very, very supportive, was it about your life experiences that brought you to this perspective?
1: I definitely think it was my life experiences that brought me to this perspective. It was very traumatic. I was 10 years old, and my mother had listened to the advice of the doctor on how to take care of my brother, who was 18 months old, after he ingested aspirin. He was playing, so we don't know how much he ingested. And the doctor told her to put him to bed and see how he is in a few hours. Well, anybody that knows anything knows that if you take a poison, you don't just wait around to see how it's going to work. You run to the hospital and pump the stomach. But she, being an immigrant, and also being sort of afraid to exert her own opinion and being afraid to be different, followed what the doctor said. And unfortunately, he died as a result Mm -hmm. of that. And what that taught me as a 10-year-old was that no matter what credentials somebody had, and no matter how learned they were, if what they said didn't make sense, don't follow it. And so, I ended up being very interested in learning, but I was only interested in learning nonfiction stuff, anything nonfiction. I was also interested in math and science and anything that could help me protect myself from having some kind of a negative, well, dying, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, just a few months after the tragic death of my brother, I had an experience where I was in the house with my mother, and all of a sudden, we all started to faint. And I had another brother, and he fainted first, and then my mother, everybody. And so my mother said to me, lie down on the bed and wait, and I'll come and get you when things are better. And if I would have followed her advice, I would not be here today, because it was carbon monoxide poisoning, and I just would have died. So, I remember not following her advice and literally crawling down the stairs to get out of that house. I was already at that point. I'm not listening to anything. I'm listening to myself. Mm-hmm. It wasn't on a conscious level, it was more intuitive, instinctual. You know, I was going to do what I thought was right because I wanted to make sure that I was going to survive. Very black and white in that case. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think that this seems to have shaped your idea of education, which is to really teach kids to to think for themselves, right? To teach people to, to think for themselves. Now, of course, in today's world, we have a problem where no one trusts any authorities, right? And that, that people are inherently skeptical of expertise. It seems to me that that's not the same as really thinking for yourself, right? When you say think for yourself, it means to use your critical faculties to evaluate things in a way that, that makes sense. How do you teach kids this? How do you actually get kids to, to think for themselves? I mean, you, you mentioned the philosophy of education, teach people to fish rather than give them fishes, but how does one actually put that into practice?
1: Well, I did that early on. I started teaching in 1984. So in 87, I got my first computers. I was an odd duck at that point also, probably the only teacher in the whole district or maybe in the state for that matter. And one of the first things that I wanted to teach my students to do was how to search.
0: Is this when the principal said it was a fad? Computers were a fad in Palo Alto.
1: Yeah, they were a fad and that I don't have to worry about it. We were never going to get any more. And all along, I continued to refine how I teach people to search and analyze the results of a search. And then I met this guy, Dan Russell from Google. And Dan Russell was a professor at Stanford. And then he took this job at Google called, he was in charge of user happiness. I was like, really? Why is that? What does that mean? And turns out user happiness means that if you search, you get what you want. And then you're a happy user. So he wrote a book called The Joy of Search. It just came out last year. But I used a lot of his ideas before he published the book. I just wanted kids to be able to search things, but then also analyze the result of the search, because sometimes you get stuff that is just not sensible. Practice is what I had the kids do, a lot of practice, and a lot of searching, a lot of talking about it. I also taught what were the propaganda techniques, there were 10 of them, how Mm -hmm. to create propaganda. And why would I teach that? Well, because if you can create it, you can recognize it, and you can then avoid it. It was so much of that that made a huge difference, like bandwagon. I don't know if you know what the bandwagon technique is.
0: No. What is it?
1: It's usually a company that's doing it, trying to show you how great their product is and that Mm -hmm. everybody else is on the bandwagon, but you aren't.
0: Social proof, yeah.
1: Yeah. If you want to get on the bandwagon, you better hop on right away. But once you learn all these, you can recognize them in advertising and in stories and I also used to teach about Fox News. I had the kids watch Fox News and pick out when they were not quoting facts, but were quoting opinion. And there's a little phrase that they all use, by the way, in case you don't know it. They always say, some people say, and then Mm -hmm. they quote it. And so most people miss the phrase, some people say, and they just go to what was quoted. And then they quote that as fact. (laughs) It's like, it's not fact. It's just a lot of hearsay. So just a lot of practice, I think, that helped my students learn to do it and stories about why it's important to think independently.
0: And in my classes, in my data and decisions class, I teach deceptive statistics, how to lie with statistics, how to lie with graphics, accounting, I teach what were called financial shenanigans. pimp out your income statement and so forth. And I try to do that in in all of my classes because in order for you to understand how to make sense of truth and lies, you have to learn the tricks of the liars. Now, I always worry that some of those students are gonna take those tricks and you know really put them into practice. You gotta gotta (laughs) worry about that at a business school. There was a great story in, in your book about when you had the principal come by and kind of inspect your methods and how you had to kind of pull the wool over his eyes. I don't know, did you ever get in trouble about this?
1: Well, fortunately, the book came out in 2019. And the people that were putting the pressure on me were there in 1984, 85, Mm -hmm. 86. So they'd all either retired or moved on somewhere else. And so they could not get too mad because they weren't there. But for your listeners, just to tell them what I did, I got into trouble because I allowed my students to collaborate. And In the 1980s, collaboration was seen as cheating. Everybody had to do it themselves. They came into my classroom and it was really noisy and the kids were collaborating and I was talking and they were like, this looks like a circus. It's chaos in Mm -hmm. here. And I was like, oh, well, maybe a little bit of chaos, yes, but they're learning. Anyway, they gave me the ultimatum. Either you make them all quiet and listen to you and no talking or you're out the door. So I had two weeks to straighten out the class. And what I did, well, the first day I was kind of just depressed. I didn't know what to do. And my husband said, just quit. I told you not to teach anyway. You should be doing something else. I don't know why you're doing this. He's a professor at Stanford, very helpful. So what I decided to do instead was I told my students what happened. And I said, they don't like the way that I'm conducting the class. So the next time any of the observers from the administration come in, I don't want you to say a word, silence. Well, that was it. They were like on my side. And they're like, yeah, we really like this class. We don't want you to change. And so the next time the principal came in, they were like mute, didn't say a word the whole time. And he couldn't believe it. He's like, what did you do to them? <laughs> like, well, I wasn't going to tell you the truth, of course. But that helped me get over that stumbling block. But the word got out in the school that my classes were lively, let's put it that way. The enrollment grew. I started with 20 kids, and by 1987, I had 50 signed up. And then by year 2000, it was over the top. I had to start other programs. There were over 100 kids.
0: So it reminded me of my experience. I went to Montessori school through third grade and then transferred to the public school system. The public school system in my neighborhood was actually among the best in the country. It was really very top shelf and great placement and so forth. But I just remember when I entered that environment when we were all sitting at our desks and there was a woman at the front of the room on the blackboard. And I was just stunned. I, I couldn't really understand like why we were wasting so much time. It was, it was kind of crazy. And so luckily I was seated somewhere towards the back of the room. So I was able to more or less engage in independent learning. This was, I think, probably early 70s, and my mother kind of stormed into the school and created a bit of a ruckus. And so they created this gifted program. So for some of us, we had a bit of an escape hatch. We were able to just go and basically have one hour a day that was basically Montessori school. That kind of took the edge off. But it seems like these ideas of project-based learning, student-directed learning, learning driven by the curiosity of the student... These ideas have been around for for a long time. They're not new ideas, but you still don't see universal acceptance. I mean, even at the university level, we have the the sage on the stage as sort of the dominant teaching method. What accounts for kind of the slow rate of adoption in the educational system for more student-directed learning?
1: I would say that the main reason is, first of all, lack of trust for teachers. They think that that's why they have scripted learning. Pearson and all the major publishers have textbooks at all levels where they tell the teacher exactly what to do on every day of the school year in every subject. And so if they don't trust the teacher, then they are going to tell you what to do all the time. The second reason that I think this keeps happening is because it's much more efficient for a system to train large groups of people at the same time. Provided that you force them to learn it and force them to take tests on it, then perhaps people will learn it. That's how they taught reading, and actually it worked. Mm -hmm. But people were motivated to learn to read because literacy is a big deal. But today, the teachers, they're following the Common Core State Standards, whether it fits that group or not. They check off every standard. I've done this. I've done that. And so it's all because of accountability and the lack of trust. I think that's what's going on. If you take a look at the countries that score the highest in the world, one being Finland, and you look at how they treat their teachers, they treat the teachers with trust and respect. They pay them a high salary, and the teacher does not have to follow a defined curriculum. They've got a goal for the year. Everybody has a goal. And how they achieve that goal is up to the teacher and the students. And that makes the education exciting. So they score the highest in the world on the PISA test, the PISA, the international test of student assessment.
0: But then we also, I mean, look, there are a lot of educational systems that also produce high-scoring individuals that have a very different philosophy of education, particularly in, in a lot of the Asian countries. They have very high test scores. And it's really much more of a rote memory, top-down form of education. Is there a better way to assess what we're trying to achieve with students? I mean, if we're trying to encourage creativity, we're trying to encourage independence, they typically are difficult to test, are they not?
1: Yes, those are very difficult to test. And actually, that's a great question, because those other countries that score the highest, Singapore, China, and that's all top-down, and that's all memorization, and the main things that those countries are concerned about, especially in Asia, is creativity or lack mm. of it. And I've given talks in Singapore, their Department of Education, in China. The book actually comes out in Chinese this spring. And the reason that they're interested in it is because they know their system does not encourage creativity. Mm-hmm. And so how can they encourage creativity? And that's what they want to do. So you're right. You cannot test for this. And so perhaps we're relying too much on tests.
0: We can only manage what we measure. So we tend to focus on metrics that, that are relatively easy to capture and generally don't trust leaving things to the discretion. And So you mentioned trust, and at that level, it's about trusting teachers. But I think your, your philosophy of education and parenting is really also built on on trust, right? Trusting the, the child, trusting the student. And in fact, the T is, the trust is the first part of the philosophy you call trick, right? The trick philosophy, which has a couple other elements. Maybe just go through the trick for us and then tell us, how did you put this together?
1: So the first letter starts for trust. T for trust, R, respect, I, independence, C, collaboration, K for kindness. So with my parenting Of my children my idea very early i decided to do this i was going to trust and respect them and i was going to give them a lot of independent collaborate instead of dictate and treat them with kindness that meant it's kind of crazy but even for a small child a toddler i gave them a lot of things to do that other people might never have done but gave them a real sense of competence And it was things like when they were 18 months apart, Susan, who was 18 months old, she was given duties to take care of Janet, who was a newborn, basically. I was always really good at figuring out what kids could actually do that made them feel like they were not just doing silly things. And I mean, one thing that Susan did is there was no baby monitor back in those days. And we have a two-story house. And I couldn't hear from the upstairs to the downstairs. So Susan was the live baby monitor. And she took it very seriously. That was just the beginning. They did things like full diapers and actually helped set the table. And by the time Susan was three, Janet was two, they made their own breakfast. I taught them how they didn't cook, but they poured milk. They fixed themselves cereal. They opened the refrigerator and got yogurt out they could learn how to peel fruit. I would come downstairs. I did this for a very selfish reason, I have to admit, because when they knew how to make their own breakfast, then I got to sleep in for another hour. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. And they were very proud of themselves. And they also turned on the TV. Oh, there were only two channels at that time, Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. So that was it. I didn't have to worry about anything terrible. And so I'd come downstairs and they'd already eaten and they were watching TV, and they were ready to take a walk or do something else.
0: Well, this reminds me very much of my childhood. Anyone that grew up in the, in the 70s might recognize a bit of what you're describing. And I think part of it is your philosophy is very intentional. I'm not sure that my, my mother's was as, as intentional, and yet it yielded similar results. I think when you describe this experience to parents today, a couple things come to mind. First of all, it's surprising you weren't arrested, for one thing, because of your neglect of your, of your children, and you can talk a bit about that. They were certainly free range. And then the other thing, and this is a, a kind of a troubling observation, which is that mothers today, even though they have responsibilities outside of the household, which are much greater than they were in the past, I mean, fathers as well work longer hours, they're no longer nine to five In spite of the fact that there are these greater demands outside of the household, childcare seems to occupy a larger percentage of people's time, even with fewer children. So the amount of childcare per child has really just grown tremendously in the last 30 years. And and I guess the question is, is this a good thing for kids? Is there a trade-off or is it actually a lose-lose? The parents lose their free time and the children are, are losing certain important elements of character.
1: Independence. Yeah. I think it's the last one, Greg. It's lose-lose. The parents are losing their free time and the kids are losing their independence. And it's over the top today because now we have electronic devices where we can monitor our kids. We can monitor their every movement. There's an app, actually, that I talk about in some of my talks but I won't tell people the name because I realized when I was giving out that app and the name, people were signing up for it. <laughs> yeah. They wanted to monitor their kids. Mm-hmm. They can monitor them everywhere, you know, where they go, what they watch on the computer, what they're doing on their phone. And you can imagine how that makes kids feel. Not to mention the fact they confiscate the phones or they confiscate the computer. Like I saw what you were doing. Stop doing that. Let's not only stop doing it, I'm removing your device. I think we need to remember that when you want to have happy, self-reliant kids, you have to give them independence. And instead of coming up with rules that you personally come up with, why don't you collaborate with them and come up with the rules? You'd be surprised at how good they are coming up with rules that work for both of you.
0: Palo Alto was famous a few years back for having a rash of teen suicides. And I think some of the numbers we look at today were, I think, one in four young people seriously considered suicide during the pandemic. And we could look at the pandemic as a potential proximate cause, but it kind of raises concerns about what the underlying state of psychological stability is in in our young people. And I think you would probably say that this was not unpredictable. This was something which is kind of a direct result of, of how they've been educated, how they've been parented to some degree. But of course, at the same time, you say parents shouldn't worry so much. And then you tell us all these reasons why we should be worried about our worrying.
1: (laughs) No, we need to stop worrying and stop over-controlling the kids and give them an opportunity to be independent. I have 10 grandchildren, and more than one of them started to become addicted to games. And I thought, well, this looks like what's going on around the country. You know, they all want a game all the time. So what we did is say to this one kid, or they all did it eventually, if you want a game, you're going to have to build your own gaming computer. I'll tell you, <laughs> they did it. Not only did they do it, it turned out to be such a powerful gaming computer, it could run anything. But what did we do by doing that? Well, they learned a lot about how to build a computer, how games are constructed. I can tell you today, they're in their teenage years, 15, 15, and 12, and they're not gaming as much. They're doing a lot of other things. But those skills they learned in gaming and in building that computer are really useful for them now.
0: Why do you suppose parents are so resistant to this idea of cutting their kids loose to some degree? Or I mean, what you're describing actually reminds me a lot of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. His writing about education was very much about creating an environment. It's not a complete free-for-all environment, but an environment where there are consequences for bad actions, but there's an enormous amount of scope for discovery. Why do parents resist this? Is this an overblown concern about fake dangers, or is it really a desire to really see one's self manifested in, in the lives of their children?
1: So there's maybe three reasons. One is they perceive the world as dangerous. And mm-hmm. why do they perceive the world as dangerous? Because they read it all on social media They see so many dangerous things. And if they don't proactively protect their child, they might be nabbed, you know, when they go out to the mailbox to get
0: the mail. What's like right now? I mean, all the school closings due to COVID.
1: Everybody is overprotective. It's crazy. But it's because you read things, you know, might have happened in Norway or might have happened in Finland or Germany or something. And you're like, oh, could happen here. I Mm -hmm. need to be careful. And back when I was growing up, the news traveled slowly. It was in the 1950s. There were newspapers twice a day, morning news and evening news. And if you didn't read the newspaper, you didn't even know what was going on. So parents were much more relaxed back then because they were ignorant and they didn't know as much. There probably was more crime back then, but I just don't know, to be honest. So that's one reason. I think people are just more fearful. I think the second reason is that Everybody wants their kid to go to the best school out there. Everybody's very competitive. And so they think that if they don't manage their child properly, they aren't going to be successful. So it's competitive, the second one. And I think we can see that in a lot of places. I mean, we saw that in this terrible scandal with the guy that was doing the tests for Mm -hmm. all the famous movie stars and whatever. And this person actually was operating right here in Palo Alto shockingly, and people were paying for it.
0: So your kid's education is in some degree a a status symbol?
1: It's a status symbol. And so one of the slides that I have in this deck that I do is that this is not a pet show. Your child is not out there competing with other pets. This is a human being. You have to stop competing. And it starts with toilet training. I'm not kidding. So how old is your kid? Oh, you mean he's already toilet trained? And you go home and you start beating yourself up. No, we're all different. Mm. I said this in some of my talks too. No one ever asks you how old you were when you were toilet trained. Ever. Mm. No one cares. Or how old were you when you learned to sleep through the night? And all this competition starts early and then it intensifies.
0: So like social comparison. I think you mentioned that you have a story in the book about one of the kids who wouldn't communicate or walk.
1: Oh, it's there's it one of my grandchildren that refused to walk he was 18 (sighs) months old 18 months and he wouldn't walk and it was just by random when i used to carry him everywhere i took him to some kind of a gym facility i thought well let's see if he can crawl up and down the whatever the balls or whatever in the distance he saw some kids playing basketball in the gym i swear to god almost you could have called the ambulance almost fainted he got up and ran to the other side I was like, are you kidding? I couldn't believe it. So then I brought him home and my daughter said, don't tell me. I can't believe this is true. Because he again refused to walk at home. Today, he's a college student, so he's fine.
0: So in many ways, people are concerned about differences, right? There's different learning styles. There's different degrees of development. People have different sizes and bodies and so forth. And people are concerned that they're not up to snuff in one way or another. One of the things that struck me when I was reading your book is, the similarities between the teacher relationship, the parent relationship, and the employer relationship. So, not to suggest that the employment relationship is in loco parentis, but in a way it is, right? It is. We have campuses, Google, Facebook campuses, they're more or less kind of extensions of university campuses. You know, managers are, are really more today responsible for nurturing the growth of their employees as opposed to just looking for obedience in their employees. The Taylorist idea of just turn that crank and I'm going to make sure you turn that crank X number of times an hour, and if you don't, you know, I'm going to fire you or fine you or whatever. I mean, that kind of employee is kind of useless in, in t- today's world. So the manager is now the coach. And I think you refer to the teacher as the, the guide on the side. And I think managers increasingly have to look at themselves that way. And you mentioned, of course, at Google, that Google trusts its employees to manage their own time and pursue projects. Can you take your general philosophy of, of learning and transfer it to the employment domain?
1: That's a great question. Simple answer is yes. And I've been starting to do that. Actually, I have a partner from Amsterdam, a wonderful young woman who I'm working with. It's called the trickmethod.com. And we just got started in December and we're really not started yet because a lot of things have happened worldwide. But I'm trying to do that because so many groups, companies actually have Mm -hmm. asked me, whether I could do corporate training and I'm going to do it because I think they need a lot of help.
0: I mean, I've been teaching courses on, on the future of work and on strategic HR management for the last couple of years. And all the HR people that I talk to, first of all, HR used to be kind of a irrelevant thing within the company. You know, make sure everybody gets their benefits and that nobody gets harassed. And now it's really all about like, how do we bring out the best in our employees, which is really, you know, the job of parents about how do I bring out the best in my child, right? And the teacher is really all about how do I bring out the best in my student? And so I can see how every stage of the the trick philosophy is manifested in the best HR practices today.
1: It's exactly right. And what Google did at the beginning, I was there at the beginning when Google first started, is they hired the best people they could find and then trusted them and respected them and gave Mm -hmm. them a lot of independence. And the whole philosophy in the company is collaboration. Mm -hmm. Everything's collaborative. And then they treated them with kindness all the time. Free food, back rubs. If you don't feel well, we have a doctor on site. You need your shoes shined. There's a guy over there that does it. But they try to treat you like a human being that they care about. And a lot of companies prior to this, I would say the 20th century companies, it was more, have you put in your time? And you clocked in and clocked out. There was no caring about the employee. It was caring about productivity of the employee. So there's a big company in Germany that just adopted this basically trick philosophy, Siemens. Since they were stuck like everyone else with pandemic, they figured that they would concentrate on the product instead of how you got to the product. And I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense for lots of
0: companies. In a previous podcast, I was talking to someone about how In some ways, employers have to kind of make up for some of the shortcomings that maybe should have happened in in the educational space, right? So I think in your book, you talk a little bit about some conversations you had about the millennial employee, right, that everybody talks about and some (laughs) of the challenges that employers are faced with, you know, when employing this. I mean, it's obviously stereotyped to some degree sort of the lack of difficulties with grit and resilience and the ability to fail and have disagreements and deal with feedback and so forth. It would be really great if we could make sure that people show up for their jobs with these traits already in place. How does one do that? Or maybe before they even show up at, at, say, university, you know, because they they were raised in a household like this. What exactly are those attributes that you find particularly concerning about maybe today's youth or entry-level employees?
1: I actually did a survey of CEOs and their hiring. And every single one that I interviewed that's in the book said that they had a pretty serious time hiring employees who were willing to take a risk of any kind, intellectual risk. The main complaint was that the employees coming out of even the best Ivy League schools were always stopping all the time to get reassurance that they were doing it right. Mm -hmm. Is this right? Am I doing a good job? Should I be doing something else? And I think this comes from a training where there has to be a right answer. And if you're not on that right path, Mm -hmm. well, then there's a problem. And creativity, as you know, when you're creative, you're vulnerable because nobody else has done it before and you're doing something different and you might look like a fool, but you're at least trying. And schools should encourage kids to take a risk so that they are not so afraid of making a mistake when they go into the corporate world. So getting rid of this problem is something that I think at this point, that's part of what I would be talking about in corporate training is how to empower your youngest employees, your most recent employees. Because I think they're all coming out with that fear of making a mistake.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was at a, an event a couple of years back I think it was at the New York Fed. There were all the deans, a lot of the deans of the top business schools and some professors, the leaders of a lot of the top investment banks. And so we we were talking over lunch and dinner and so forth, and the issue of recruitment came up. And what was interesting was that all the people at the big banks, they said, oh, you know, this is what we're looking for in our employees, and we have such a heck of a time finding it. And the professors were all like, yeah, those are the things that we want our students to have. And we have such a hard time, you know, instilling them. And when we dug deeper, what we discovered was that the recruiters for these institutions, they weren't looking for those attributes. And then when we dug on the other side, we realized that the career management and recruitment people on our side, they weren't encouraging those attributes. So it was almost like the the recruiters and the placement people, they had their own little conversation about what they thought was was important. But the deans and the managers had a completely different notion of what was important. And I think a lot of it came back down to just like what's measurable. GPA is measurable and performance in in a structured interview is measurable and test scores and and majors and that sort of thing are are measurable. So I think we're going to have to come up with better ways of measuring these things in order to get real change.
1: I think assessment has to change. That's right. And the other thing that I realized in all the years I was teaching is that some of the most talented students that I had were late developers. So they came into my class and it was primarily boys for some reason, but they would do their homework and couldn't find it in their backpack, or they would forget their backpack, just all kinds of crazy disorganized Mm -hmm. stuff. They were having a lot of trouble. And it wasn't just my class, it was across the curriculum. But I realized that when you Give them an opportunity to believe in themselves and let them have some control of what they're doing. It's dramatic. I mean, these kids become amazing students. And by the time that they were 12th grade, they were outstanding. But then again, the other thing that bothered me was some of these kids did poorly, C's and D's in mm-hmm. ninth grade. and By the time they were juniors and seniors, they were doing really well, got A's. Mm-hmm. They averaged those grades. For college. And so I was always writing letters, discount his first and second year of high school. Let's just look at junior and senior year. So we need to revise the way that we evaluate kids. It's just not fair.
0: It's allowing for some exploration, allowing for development. You mentioned when you were in college, you worked as a house cleaner. and That's right. I've had some odd jobs myself, and I think your kids all had some odd jobs. That's at least at the high-income groups and and high-achieving groups to come to the elite universities. It's kind of increasingly rare to find that kind of experience. What can that type of experience do for you? How does that help as a learner?
1: It gives you a lot of grit. That makes you appreciate a lot of things, the value of money, the value of your possessions. It's kind of crazy, but I still have clothing that I bought when I was in college because everything was so valuable to me. Since I didn't have any money, I always took care of everything. And I see today a lot of kids don't do that. They don't recognize the value of hard work. And also it gave me the perspective. I know what it's like to be a house cleaner and I actually know what it's like to be a waitress. And so I appreciate those people, and I appreciate what they contribute. Mm -hmm. I think that it would be great if more kids had that opportunity. We have to stop giving our kids so much stuff. This idea I came up with, I think it was after I wrote the book, that all these parents, they pay these huge tuitions for their kids, and the kid never sees the money going back and forth between the parent and the university. So my idea is, parent, have the kids write the check. Just write the check. They don't sign it, but they write it. But just paying, I don't know, $25,000 to school, and you know how much money is going into that, or fifty. somehow it changes your perspective, and maybe you pay more attention to the sacrifice that your parents are making for you to be able to go to a, an elite university or a university or a college anywhere.
0: One of the letters and trick is collaboration, and I think you talked about how important it is to have kind of collaborative activities with your children and with your students. And, and you mentioned the vacation planning as a great example. And, and when I read that, I thought, wow, I remember when I planned my family's trip to California when I was in sixth grade. We came on out to California and, and went up and down the state. And I organized. We went to got the AAA trip pack, and we you know went to Sequoia mm-hmm. National Park and Disneyland and all that stuff. I, I really like that and. The other thing I think you mentioned is this idea that parents have to really lead by example and you know show that the way, best way for people to learn is through leadership, through observation. And, and this is true, I think, in the corporate world as well. Right. If the leadership's not walking the walk, then it, it's very difficult for anybody to kind of learn that. I love the checklist. It's certainly not exhaustive, but certain character traits and virtues and behaviors that you thought would be super helpful for children to have imprinted on them by their parents how did you come up with that list? This is like punctuality and presentation and neatness and how do you deal with food? How do you deal with strangers? Are you honest? That kind of stuff.
1: All those things, kids follow you. So if you're punctual, they're punctual. Whatever matters to you matters to them. And so a lot of parents will say, do as I say, don't do as I do. And I think that's the number one problem that I see going on there. And it unfortunately happens with electronic usage. Don't use your phone at dinner. Be respectful. And then the parents do it.
0: Yeah, I thought that your point on tech was technology was particularly relevant in today's world, especially given where we live. We all know Steve Jobs famously restricted his kids' usage of Apple products. And, and you talk a lot about partial attention. If someone did not have the opportunity to read your book and you wanted to give them some guidance on the dangers of tech in the household, and also I think in the classroom, how would you summarize this? How could you devise a good policy? And I think part of it is that the policy has to be developed by the kids themselves. We have it at Berkeley in our MBA program. The students themselves came up with a no electronics policy in the classroom. And I think there's no way that we as professors could create and, and impose a, a policy like that. I mean, as a professor, if you stand up and say, I don't want to see anybody with their cell phones in class, like, it would never work. And we don't even try it with the executive MBAs, but with the full-time MBAs, they actually, they themselves kind of designed this policy and then they kind of call each other out for violations of it.
1: I think that that's exactly the way it has to work. It has to be collaborative. They have to come up with the policy because if you come up with the policy, then you're always a policeman in a classroom or at home. And so they have to understand the why behind it. And most parents don't explain the why. They just like, I'm telling you to do it and you're going to do it. And that works against the student or against the kid and against the teacher. And it also works against the manager. People need to feel respected and they need to understand why. So in my classes, the tech policy was always a collaborative policy. What do you think and how do you think Tech should be used? What should we do with phones? And if you don't think we should be allowing phones in the classroom, let's vote on that and make that a policy. Every class had their own policy, but for the most part, I can tell you that they did not allow technology in the classroom. If you were talking or other people were talking, they wanted you to pay attention. In spite of what everybody says, you cannot multitask.
0: Is there something particularly dangerous about? technology as opposed to, I mean, when I was a kid, I was walking around with a book the whole time. My parents would have to force me to put the book down to eat dinner. I'd be walking down the street like this and I'd be stumbling over the curve. And, you know, I mean, I was the same way. Is that any better than walking around with my phone?
1: I think it is better than walking around with your phone because on your phone, you're watching basically what other people are doing on Instagram you're watching crazy videos, you're watching TikTok, you're watching things that really don't amount to much in the way of any kind of edification. You're not learning anything. It's just a watch me world. Watch me do crazy things.
0: So if your kids are reading long-form journalism on their phone, it would be different.
1: Actually, that is true. If they're reading a book on their phone, or they're reading something else on their Mm. phone, then it's different. But I explain this to the kids, so it's not like it's a big secret, show me what you're doing and now you know I can see you're doing something really silly. There are teacher products out there, and I won't name them, I don't want to embarrass them, but they enable the teacher to watch what every kid is doing on their computer at every minute of the class period. And you can just run over to a student and say, I saw that you checked your Facebook page. I personally think this is terrible. It's an invasion of a student's privacy, and if he wants to check his Facebook page, well, maybe there was some important message coming that he wanted to check. I don't agree with any of that over-monitoring that is going on.
0: I think in addition to being a teacher and a parent, I I think of you as a journalist in a way. Even though your journal doesn't have the circulation of of a New York Times, the campanile (laughs) is... As a, as a much smaller footprint, but you are the titular owner. You're the Rupert Murdoch of the local high school journal. And I remember when I was in second grade, I had a mimeograph machine down in the Montessori school and I would make these the newspaper for the class. Instruction in journalism, the way in which you do it, what special insight do you think they're getting from that? Or would they get the same insight if you were if you had them managing any kind of enterprise, part of it's about having this student-run organization where they're responsible and held accountable for what it is they're doing. But part of it is that what they're doing is journalism. Is it the journalistic education helping them to better understand the difference between, say, fact and inference, and normative and positive, and you know those kind of critical thinking skills that we often always wish that people had more of?
1: It actually is doing exactly what you say: fact and inference. The shocking thing is most people in this country can't distinguish between fact and opinion. First of all, they learn all the social media skills for life by doing
0: it. Does the uh, Campanile have a Twitter presence? Yes. An Instagram presence now?
1: Yes, the Campanile does. But, you know, in addition, there's 10 other publications. They're all magazines or Mm -hmm. websites or other things. And they all have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram presence. They learn how to manage social media. They know the power of social media. And also by being able to write a story, you can understand when you read a story, you can see what you're looking for in that story. Like, are those credible sources? Are there sources at all? What kind of a story is this? And even if it's an opinion story, is it properly documented? A feature story? I mean, feature's not supposed to have opinion in it either. Why is there so much opinion in this feature story? I think every student in this country should have a journalism program for at least one semester so that they become literate in the social media and they should learn about all the different social media uh, opportunities, if you want to call it, or programs out there.
0: Because you know, we're all journalists now.
1: We're all journalists. We're citizen journalism. We're all yeah. writing, we're all tweeting We're all on LinkedIn or Instagram or, I mean, there's so many products out there and kids need to know what it's all about. And you know, they don't teach it anywhere in the school, nowhere. And they should. Why not? Isn't that what the school is supposed to do? Prepare you for the real world? Why aren't we teaching any of this? Hmm. Instead, we confiscate kids' phones and put them in phone hotels and then they pick them up at the end of the day at three o'clock. So, I think that we need to change our policy and what we teach.
0: So, I want to end with the final letter in think, right? which is kindness. And you end your book also with a, with a discussion of the importance of kindness, and you talk about purpose, and I think purpose is, is related to community, which is related to kindness. Is kindness actually something that you can teach? I think most of us, the fundamental attribution error that we all succumb to, which is that there are kind people and not so kind people. Is kindness a characteristic that you can teach? And is it really the role and responsibility of the teacher to teach this? Or is, is this really exclusively the domain of the parent?
1: I personally think you can teach kindness. And not only that, I think it's really important in our world to teach people to be kind, have compassion and empathy. I think it starts at home and all parents hopefully, are teaching this, but some parents are not. You teach it by modeling it. You teach it by treating your children with kindness, by understanding their frustrations, by being compassionate and empathetic. And one thing that I think is, again, really important is to carry this through to the school. So the school and the teacher, school, teacher, parent, all should be working together together. And in many cases, they are. The majority of students in America, I think, were exposed to a curriculum that involved kindness, being accepting of each other. But there are some, as we can see from looking around, that did not experience this and who are angry. But if you look at all the people who are really angry adults doing really scary things, they had really bad childhoods. And I think it's historic. You can just take a look and see what's going on. So yes, you can teach kindness and you can teach it by being kind and by talking about the importance of kindness. There is nothing that makes you happier as a teacher than to see a child succeed. And that really is kindness. And that's what all teachers enter the profession with that goal. And then somehow they get lost in all the rules and regulations and pressures and so forth. But that is really what it's all about.
0: Right. And I think in your book, you describe a couple scenarios where you were able to help some people that that had come in with with anger, with difficult backgrounds, and, and were able to help them turn that around to some degree.
1: I am mentoring somebody right now, an adult, who's experienced a very... I guess you would say troubling childhood, where he was teased all the time. He was one of these kids who was not very athletic. They line up all the kids and like, who wants to be on whose team? And he was always the last kid chosen. And he was always ridiculed. Those things stick with you for life. It's really sad. Anyway, anybody can be helped, in my view, as long as they find a mentor or somebody who can really support them. And believe in them. I think it can make a big difference. And every human life is valuable. We want to help -hmm. those people live to their full
0: potential. Well, last question. I'm very inspired by this. With the move to online education. So most of the training you've done and teaching you've done in your life has been in the bricks and mortar setting where you can develop good relationships with with kids face to face. Do you think that online education is limiting in, in your ability to do that? I mean, most of the kids in this country are at home being taught remotely, and they usually have their parents sitting in, around being responsible in part for what, what they're learning. Does this open up new possibilities? If there are good teachers, maybe these good teachers can have a bigger footprint and a bigger reach, or is it that the effectiveness of the teacher is going to be inherently reduced by this lack of interaction?
1: I do think that unfortunately, it's the latter. I think that teachers are still trying to follow the curriculum. They're still trying to do what the administration tells them to do. As a result, these are large groups of kids on a Zoom call, not being able to interact with each other, that are sitting there listening to the teacher talk. I would say that's at least 50% of what's going on today. Maybe the other 50% is better, but I haven't seen a lot of evidence to that effect. I retired in June because of this pandemic. I just saw it coming. And also I've been teaching. I was thinking of retiring anyway. But what I did last spring when we had to stay home is I changed the way the Zoom call was structured. And the program is doing that now. There's about 700 kids taking journalism at that Palo Alto High School. And all the other teachers are following this model. We put the kids in charge of the Zoom calls much of the time. And we allow a lot of these two to three students in a group going off on side visits or So if the kids are working on the project together and they're interacting with each other, Zoom has these rooms that you can go into together in a small group, then it's fine because then they can do things and plan things that they want to do. But if it's a teacher talking to 30 kids at once for an hour, it is ineffective. I mean, I think adults need to stop and ask themselves how effective that would be for them. And why are they having kids do that? So I want to sympathize with teachers, though, because I realize that they are put in this position of being told to do that. It's a tough world.
0: The sage on the stage method might scale just fine because it wasn't super effective to begin with, but the more uh, personalized forms of education may or may not scale quite so easily.
1: They don't scale as easily, but I think it's better for a kid to interact with three or four kids and the teacher once a week on a personal level than it is to interact with a big group every day.
0: Well, this has been fascinating. I enjoyed you coming and speaking with me today and with people out there who are going to listen to this podcast. So everybody, remember how to raise successful people, check it out. There's also the other book, Moonshots in Education, which I think is out of print, but you can track it down somewhere on Amazon.
1: Yeah, it's a little expensive, but I'm thinking about setting it, revising it, and printing it again.
0: And stay tuned for more from Esther, okay? So nice chatting.
1: Thank you so much. It was a great conversation.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.